Brilliant. Good morning, everybody. It is really warm here. Right. It's, it's a good morning. It's going to be an even better morning. Amen. Love it. Getting you prepped. So I have a joke for you. I actually memorized it, this one. Jazz isn't down Patrick, so she can't come here and give me like terrible looks, the professional joke teller. Yeah. So three, pa- three pastors are meeting in one of, the, one of the pastors' church for their weekly accountability session. The first pastor starts, he goes, gentlemen, I'm really struggling with gluttony. There's a new chippy that's just opened down the street, and I cannot stop eating, no matter what I do. This is my third suit in the last three weeks. <laughs> I'm struggling. Moves to the next pastor. Next pastor goes, gentlemen, I need you to pray for me. I'm really, I'm really bad at lying. I've been telling my secretary I've been coming in at 9.30, haven't been coming in to about 11. I actually don't really like my job. <laughs> the third pastor looks around the room and goes, gentlemen, I, I really struggle with gossip. <laughs> and I can't wait to get out of this meeting. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. So we've been starting. I'm, I'm proud of that joke. That was really, really good. So we're finishing up our series on Beloved. We've been talking about King David. And if you've been following along with us, week one, Ian spoke. Um, we've been kind of doing a, a, a flyby look at David's life and kind of the lessons and things that we've been able to learn and, and kind of glean for that. And so in week one, Ian spoke about David and Goliath, how God is so good and that he equips us to face our giants. Hoorah! Face our giants. Week two, the illustrious Richard Porter got up and spoke about David and the tabernacle. I mean, there's sometimes you just sit there and you listen to Richard Porter and you're just like, oh. Like, there's glory that comes out. Amazing. Then week three, we had the lovely Mara come up and speak about David in the cave. And that's how surrender and giving God surrender and surrendering ourselves to the authorities above is actually the way that we get freedom. And it's actually the way that we let God move in our lives. So that brings us to today. Today's a great day. Because this week, we're talking about repentance. We're talking about David and Bathsheba. That got so quiet. <laughs> yes, we are. If you have your Bibles, why don't you join with me? Second Samuel chapter, I said chapter two there. That's definitely not right. Chapter 11. There's a lot going on in this story and we'll, we'll jump in. Whenever we start thinking about this word repentance, I don't know about you, but my, my mind immediately goes to all those, those people um, in, the, in the cities. These, they have them in America. They have them in Belfast too. They shout out, repent. And then they follow up with a, a King James scripture that I have no idea what they're saying. It doesn't sound like English. It doesn't help because I also don't speak the native Belfast tongue. So even when they're speaking out, it still is kind of, sounds like gibberish. But you get this idea. In fact, why don't we all say this together? We're gonna, we're gonna break a little uh, barriers here. 
Can everyone just shout with me on the count of three, repent? One, two, three. Repent! See, now, now you're all hypocrites because you've all shouted in public, so that's great. So 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 11, and, and I'm gonna do you all a favor this morning because there's so much to cover. We could talk about David and Bathsheba just as itself a story and have a mini-series just on that. So I recognize, so for those of you who are really big in scriptures and have been reading along and been following along, I want to invite you the opportunity, go in and actually read through the story from start to finish. Because what I will be doing is I'll be jumping in and out. I'll be summarizing some bits. I'll, we'll have a look at a certain different things. There's something that I really feel like is on this for us this morning. So let me tell you about King David. King David was a mighty man of God. He was known as a man after God's own heart. He saw many victories on the battlefield. Philistines and enemies of the living God fallen under. He brought peace upon a land. He acted in humility and surrender towards the Lord's anointed and even to Saul's extended family. He intentionally built his kingdom on the blueprints that God had set out for the people. And he made a covenant with God. And God promised David that his line would forever continue in kingship. He was the first priestly king, unless we're talking about Melchizedek, which is, again, we could go through another sermon just on that alone. And by all accounts, he was a man whom you would be happy in that time to let your daughter date, with the exception of maybe the several wives thing, but we'll, we'll throw that off the side. So what happens? Because this is a story that nine times out of 10, you've probably heard, even if you've never grown up in church. You've understood of David of Bathsheba. It's a story of tragedy. It's a story of heartbreak. It's a story of brokenness. It's the original Breaking Bad series. And it's painful. And we're gonna have a look at that today. So the story starts off. All of the king's men, David's, David's commanders, his armies, are out fighting, out in the battlefield. And David's on top of his roof space. In the cool of the day, taking a nap, as all kings do in springtime when they should be out in the battlefield. And it's interesting, he's lying in, and he wakes up in the middle of the day, so probably not in the place he should be. And he gets up, stretches himself off the couch, looks over out over his kingdom, and what does he see? He sees this beautiful woman there bathing. And a lot of times we kind of look at this and say, well, why was Bathsheba up there bathing on top of the roof? She probably wasn't. David could see out into every, every nook and cranny, everything from, from, his, from the top of his roof space. And he sees this, this wonderful, beautiful woman. And the, the author of this story is very clear who this woman is. Who is this Bathsheba? She's the hub, husband of Uriah. Sorry. Yes, she's the wife of Uriah. Goodness. We're starting off really well, everybody. Lovely. Thank you. That's why you have... See. Wives, keep you on the straight and narrow. Unbelievable. Yes, she's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Which, if you, if you follow David and follow King David closely, you'll notice there are these men in his life that we, we are known as David's mighty men. 
They're people that died for David. They went on these incredible journeys and adventures with David. They fought for him with their life. Uriah was one of these men. So this wasn't just a a good guy. This was one of the closest people to David in his life. So what happens? King David summons her, asks her to come to the palace, knowing full well whom she is and who she is. And David sleeps with her. And you hear a pin drop. Because we already know that this is bad. But it gets worse. She goes off, comes back. News comes to David. She's pregnant. So what does David do in this moment? I mean, there's making mistakes, and then there's the big one. This is a big one. And you can see, if you put yourself in this story, and it's quite uncomfortable if you do, I'm warning you. You sit and you wonder. What is David thinking in this moment? I'll tell you what he does, because it's all we know of what he does. He calls Uriah in. And he says, Uriah, why don't you come in? You've been working hard out in the battlefield. Listen, take a load off. Go wash yourself up. Go see your wife. Have a bit of fun. And then come on back. What does Uriah say? Far be it from me, because my brothers are out there fighting with their lives. I should not be allowed this honor of going and and laying with my wife or seeing my wife. Honor. True honor. More honor than David has. So what's David's response? Let's get him drunk. That'll fix it. That always fixes it. And what what does Uriah do? Uriah lays on the doorstep of the palace. Because he refuses to go home. Let me tell you about King David. He's so scared, and Uriah has forced his hand that he writes orders to have Uriah killed. And he sends the letter in a sealed envelope and sends it directly with Uriah to the commander, Joab, of the battlefield. He tells Joab, take Uriah, put him to the front of the lineup where all the heavy fighting is. And then you and the armies step back and let him be struck down. This happens. Uriah is killed. And Bathsheba is mourning. And after a while of mourning, we hear that David brings Bathsheba into his house and marries her. And so by all accounts, this plan for David works. But here's the kicker. I don't know if I've put this up on the side here. The final, final word on this little bit of the story said that this thing that David done had displeased the Lord. In parentheses there, you'll see the translation of this in Hebrew is quite, is literally 
what David done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, it's quite interesting. We have all these narratives throughout scripture, specifically in the Old Testament. We hear all of these things that are going on. And these things that David happens, it's like watching a car crash run into a car crash, running into a car crash again and again and again, very, very quickly. And you step back and all you get from the commentator is what David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I wonder, do we really know what evil means? It's funny, I asked Rihanna this earlier this week just to kind of, to gauge. The average person, if you ask them what evil is and we ask you to, def- to define what is evil in this world, many of you would probably say, oh, evil is ugly, horrific, abominable. For those of you who maybe don't use a, a vast vocabulary, really, really bad. But what's interesting is when we look at what scripture talks about as being evil, we get a slightly different focus. As all good sermons should go, we head back to Genesis for a little bit. And in Genesis, we see that God creates everything. You know the story. Creates all creation, and then finally, the apple of his eye, he creates humanity. Adam and Eve, he puts them in this beautiful garden, this expanse and all creation, and he walks with them. And we get this picture, and and the authors of scripture write this throughout the years and the generations, and it's understood. This is temple language. This is language in which we see that heaven and earth are one. This is where we start. This is our origin story, heaven and earth becoming one. And God shows up, and is in community and communion with Adam and Eve. Love is what binds it all together. When we talk about love, if you've, if you've been up here, you've been around Journey long enough, you'll probably have heard this. If you've taken TT courses or if you've been around John or you've been around Julie or any of them, you'll, you'll all know this. But love is the glue that sticks everything together. And love is this. It is giving and receiving. I love my wife because I give things to her and I receive things from her. She gives things to me. She receives things to me. In the basic form, that's what love is. But here's the thing. What do you give to a God that is good in everything and has everything you could ever want? There's only one thing you can give God. It's obedience. It's faith. It's trust. It's the only thing that you can give God that he doesn't already have. And we know that the the greatest tragedy throughout history, what happens? Adam and Eve disobey God. Now we could jump into a different type of thing, but in that moment, we see what evil is. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, it's wretched. Yes, it's disgusting. But what evil is, is turning away from God. That's all it is, turning away from God. And when we look at evil through this pair of eyes, it can get scary because I start to sit there and look at myself and go, when are the times that I turn away from God? In my heart, in my actions, when I'm tired. You see, it's really easy to jump into a story of King David, see his mistake and goes, oh, I would never do that. Have you turned away from God ever? Ever. 
I have. Let me tell you about King David. Man after God's own heart. But in this moment, what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what happens when we do something evil, when we do something wrong, when we feel like we've done something wrong? Usually one of a couple, one of two or three emotions arises within us and they really, really suck. I don't know if I can say suck in the preach, but I just did. These emotions are awful. In fact, these emotions, we try to avoid like the plague so much so that we end up getting ourselves into more bother. Guilt, shame, and a sinfulness against the Lord, a feeling of broken relationship with, with God. And this is what ends up happening in our lives when we make mistakes, when we really butcher it and screw it up. We can't help but feel some of these emotions. Number one, guilt. The feeling that you've, you've done something wrong and you don't feel nice about it and actually, you don't want to think about it too much because what, it, what you feel is, I'm accusing myself because I've done something wrong. How many of you have ever felt that way? 20% of the room are honest. <laughs> we hate it. It's the worst feeling imaginable. And it leads us to do really stupid stuff. Number two. Shame. Shame's the worst. Shame is the fear that somebody else is going to accuse me, that I'll get found out. And in its deepest core, shame means that I am something bad. Man, people, I, I have to tell you, I understand shame. I think every human being on planet Earth understands what shame is. There's something about a Northern Irish culture, though, you hate shame. You despise it. In fact, so many people live their lives trying to run away from the shame that they perceive that people have put on you. And I've found that actually being here long enough that people who've come to journey and have sought and found freedom in Jesus, it's been because Jesus has severed that tie with shame. But nonetheless, shame is powerful. And it leads us to do really stupid stuff. It led David, led David to do some really terrible stuff. And then number three, a sense of sinfulness. This idea that, that God is displeased with me, which is actually what David's feeling. He's actually feeling all three of these things in the moment. And there's this word for sin that we use. We, we like to use it in Christianity. We like to use all these really terrible words like transgression and iniquity and Sin, and you know, most people have no idea what that is unless you've actually had somebody sit down and break it down and explain that to you. But sin is literally what it means is missing the mark. The same word is used when it talks about the, the Israelites and the, the warriors with slingshot would be able to hit a target from so many feet away, they would never miss the mark, they would not sin. What mark are we missing? Well, the mark that we're missing is the, is the mark that. We're called to be in communion with God, in communion with one another, and it's related. Fun little Bible trivia for you. You break down the 10 commandments, the law, you end up having five commandments that really focus on you and God, that relationship. 
The other five are between you and humans, your brothers, your sisters, your family, your friends. And then when Jesus comes onto the scene and they say, which is the greatest law, what does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. They're connected. So any moment that we, in our brokenness, act in a way that goes against us as humans being in the image of God, that goes against and breaks the love and the trust that we have with one another, that breaks the love and the trust with God, that, and when that moment happens, this is when sin enters. You hear John talk about all the time, we, have a, we don't have a sin problem, we have a broken love problem, and what he is saying is exactly this. And we do really, really silly things, and we love to run and hide from it. Let me tell you about King David. He ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. And if he was left to it, he would have ran for the rest of his days. But God. Let's pick up 2 Samuel 12. And this I'm going to read for you. Says in the Lord, and Yahweh sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had brought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Why four? Four actually, if you look back into Exodus, you'll see that um, the law made it very clear that if somebody's sheep was stolen or robbed, they were to repay the person who had, who had damaged the sheep or had killed the sheep or whatever, had to give it back four times as much. And so David calls this out. Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the, the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. I would have given you everything, anything you asked for, David. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned Yahweh. 
the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Hmm. There's so much to unpack in this passage, but can I just direct your attention to a couple of things? Firstly, God's heart was always to give David an abundance of what he wanted. We love to very quickly sit here and look at our God even in today's age and go, how could he do all those terrible things? What kind of kind God does that? And I usually have two responses when people ask these sorts of questions. One's a little bit nicer. So the the first one is, God does everything in his power so that you will be able to walk in freedom and walk in breakthrough. However, in his infinite wisdom, he also allows you to make a decision. The second, not so nice answer, because he's God and he can do what he wants. I struggled reading this passage, I'll be honest, because there was times I found myself sitting with the Lord and arguing with him and going, God, you just, you, you kill an innocent child. How are, you, how are you kind? Why would you do such a thing? And as I began to study and as I began to listen and as I began to try and put myself in a posture where I was like, Lord, what are you doing here? I realized something about myself. Even the way that I see God when I read the Bible is jaded. Because a lot of times I look through the world through my own set of eyes like I'm the most important person in the story. But I'm not. And actually, in this story, David isn't either. We'll get to that. Another point. David has an opportunity here because he'd been running and running and running. We know from when we study this for about a year, the child has already been born between him and Bathsheba. We don't know the child's name. And Nathan shows up and hits him right between the eyes. David has a choice. He could continue to run or he can do what he did. And he said simply, I have sinned against the Lord. That in Hebrew is two words. Hata al Yahweh. I have sinned against the Lord. Sometimes we think when we mess up, we need to go on this big cry, get it all out, which therapeutically can be helpful. Sometimes we have to make this big, broad claim. Sometimes we allow self-pity to come in and do the whole woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. But what happens here? No excuses, no deflecting, no defending, no nothing. Yeah, God, I've sinned against you. What is God's response? We like to look at it and say God's response is, I'm gonna punish you for all of these evil and horrific things that you've done. But actually God's response to David 
you will not die. He should. By the law given to Moses that they follow, he should be put to death. But God goes, you you shall not die. However, the consequences of what you have done will be this. It's scary. David says, when we're talking about the lamb, that they should be repaid fourfold. You read on through 2 Samuel and you see the things that end up happening to David and his family are horrific. But he actually ends up losing four children. All by the sword. With the exception of the child that was just killed. Let me tell you about King David. He was broken. He was a somber man. He recognized that he broke in trust with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he had sinned, not just against God, but his fellow man. But in his head, he knew that the most important thing that needed to turn right was between him and God. Him and God. There was nothing more to say nothing more to do. And this were the, these are the consequences. This may not be your everyday feel-good sermon. And if you've come to Journey for quite a while, you'll notice that we, we try our, our hardest to, make, to put forth a, as clear a picture of who our God is as we can. But ultimately, there's times where God doesn't need defended. And there's a reality that's happening that's creeping in, unfortunately, in our society and in our church, where you have a world out there that doesn't want to believe that evil or sin's even a thing, that everything's optional, which is fine until you look at their lives and it's a broken wreckage of a mess. And there's no freedom anywhere, only chains. And then on the other side, you have a church, and we don't always get this right. We're either judgmental and want to throw you into hell or we want to sweep it under the rug and be like, it's okay. Only the Lord judges you. And we have to find a middle ground because the same God who brings miracles and healings and breakthrough and victory and triumph also requires something of us. And our lives, should we give our lives to Jesus? That's what that means. It means I give my life to Jesus. It means I give my life to God. It means I'm not in control of it any longer. In fact, you read the scriptures, the apostle Paul goes on to say, I'm actually a slave to Christ. And there's a weight and an uneasiness that happens in our, in our hearts when we start and look into these, these types of stories. Maybe you're sitting there today and maybe you're sitting there going, man, this makes me so uncomfortable. I know. How do you think I feel? I'm preaching this. It is uncomfortable. Following Jesus, following God was never about being comfortable. And you have Stacy coming up, and I love the words she shared. And the, we, were, we were sitting in back and, and praying, and as she said, we we're talking about dreams and God breaking through and breaking through and breaking through. Do you want to see breakthrough happen? This needs to happen first. Come on. 
In fact, this is the most important thing. There's a YouTube video. We'll, we'll come up for, for just a minute here. There's a YouTube video that I had found some, some years ago, and it just made me laugh. There's a guy in San Francisco. Maybe, maybe some of you watch this. There's a guy in San Francisco who's an engineer, and he discovered in the parts in San Francisco where he lived that there was a really pr big problem with people stealing their packages off of the, the, the front doorstep, out of cars. Like San Francisco, I, I'd been to San Francisco and I'm so glad I didn't know this and I wouldn't have told Rihanna when we went, but there are, there are pictures of people just coming and bashing in windows and grabbing stuff in broad daylight. So there are areas in San Francisco where this was an issue. So he set out to, to get even a little bit. So he made these packages that looked like, like a VR headset or something nice like that. And inside, he constructed a glitter bomb. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Don't watch it now after we go home. It's so funny. And as the years go, as the years go on, you know, this started coming out. And so they'd be more clever. Because people weren't buying, stealing as many packages that looked of this shape. So they moved to backpacks. And they ended up putting, it got to this place where it was wild where they, they constructed in this little bundle these four cameras that could see everything that was happening, a tracking device, a glitter bomb, drones that came up and shot glitter out, and fart gas spray. <laughs> if you want to laugh and a good chuckle, listening to robbers here freaking the bit out when a fart bomb, glitter bomb goes off in their car, it is priceless. It is priceless. And I can't help but see the funny fact that when we make silly decisions, I say silly, I'm trying to make it light, but when we make decisions that displease God, when we, we act in sin, when we miss the mark, it doesn't just affect us. It affects our community. It affects the people around us. Again, this is not me trying to heap shame and heap guilt and all those things because that can get dealt with but it is facing the fact that when we make decisions that are not towards God and are actually towards evil, it affects other people. So what does David show us in this moment? Let me tell you about King David. He understood what repentance is. Remember that word I had you shout out at the beginning? Repent. Many of you know John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus even, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This word repent, teshuva. By the way, I'm saying this with absolute confidence. I have zero confidence in if that's actually how it's said. So if any Hebrew person gonna come and write me a letter and tell me that, fair play. But teshuva, what does this mean, word mean? We think it means, I'm sorry, and make this whole big song and dance. No, it's simple. It means to return, to walk towards. In the context of scripture, to return to what? To return to who God is. To return to your relationship with him. Sometimes we get so caught about where people are, where people are. Make it really simple for you this morning. You're either facing towards the Lord 
or you're facing away from the Lord. The details of it at this point are between you and the Lord, but you're either towards him or you're away from him. And the simplest message of the gospel of Jesus starts with, will you return to me and see that I'm good? You can't have the gospel without repentance. And I've heard people shout that, but they shout that with anger and with hatred in their hearts and with judgment. It's not hatred, it's not anger, it's not judgment. It's very simple though. And it is very blunt, which is why I have no problem saying it because I am very blunt. My, my wife tells me this constantly on occasions. <laughs> Turn towards Jesus. That's simple. In the macro sense, we're deciding when we do that to repent, that we're gonna turn ourselves and adjust ourselves to that garden image that we see, heaven coming to earth. And we talk about wanting revival in this land and running revival in our towns and our cities and our countries. Can I tell you, it starts with repentance. It will not happen without it. If you've watched some of the stuff that's been going on in Asbury and in places around the world, there is one common theme, though people argue this, which I don't really understand. And every occasion, there's usually one person, sometimes a couple, that have gone up and have said, I need to repent of what I've done. And you watch as the people turn back to Jesus. Church, we need to repent. We need to repent. Guess what? Every time that we turn towards evil, what do we have to do? Repent. So this isn't something where you said, this is my moment, I will repent now and I will never make a mistake ever again. Good luck to you. That's not the way it works. We're being transformed in glory to glory. Can I get the band to come up? I wanna read you this Psalm that David wrote. Because after this moment, David has some time and he writes in, and many of us know King David was, was known for his beautiful poetry. And Psalm 51, perhaps you've read it before, says this. Have mercy on me, O God according to the steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. What does that mean? Blot out the mistrust that I have with you and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my brokenness, my crookedness, my desire to turn away. Cleanse me from my sin. We all know what sin means. For I know my transgressions and my sin is before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was brought forth in brokenness and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What's hyssop? Hyssop was the... the 
the flower plant type thing that they actually used to sprinkle holy water and sprinkle blood when they were talking about sacrifice. Fun fact for you, I didn't realize this until I was reading into this. But purge me with hyssop, shall I shall be clean, clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirits. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O oh God. O oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken heart, and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me tell you about King David. Throughout his life, he would make more mistakes. He would walk away from God on a few other occasions. He would make bigger blunders than even this, believe it or not. Yet he knew what it meant to repent. And the Lord never took away the anointing that was on him. Some of you have had issue with pastors and teachers and preachers in the past, and you've sat there and go, who is this God? This person still has an anointing. They still has this gift, but they're walking in sin. I don't know why, but God rarely removes anointing off people's lives because ultimately the anointing's pointing to him. But that, that issue is between that person and someone else. So if you're sitting here and you, you've put hurt or you've been put, first of all, I, I wanna just say I'm sorry on behalf of somebody who's tried to give my life to this. I'm sorry. It won't mean much coming from me, but we're sorry. However, if you're gonna allow the livelihood of somebody else to determine whether you're going to repent or you're gonna come right with God, there's a bigger issue at hand. And I mean this in love because you're responsible for you. And the responsibility you take on your life affects other people. We've been talking morning, let me tell you about King David. Let me tell you about my king. My king's kindness leads people to repentance. My king is the true priestly king who unites heaven and earth. My king upheld every commandment, honoring both God and man. My king suffered how we suffered, though we did not miss the mark like we missed the mark. My king took on our unfaithfulness and the consequences of our distrust. My king did not defend, he did not run away, and he did not hide. My king was broken by carrying the weight of our brokenness. And my king took on the consequences of missing the mark. Let me tell you about my king. On the third day, he rose from the grave with the keys of hell and destruction, defeating the grave and the consequences of our sin. He poured out his spirit in all flesh that we may be co-heirs with him, and he made a way for us back to the garden. 
Let me tell you about my king. He is so good. He is so good. Let me tell you about my king. He has saved my family. He has changed my life. He has done miracles in my life and my life that I can't even share at this moment because it would bring me to tears. He has brought miracles over my life. There have been moments I've looked back and I've said, look at my king. And I will always find that when I'm turning this direction away from Jesus, all I have to hear is Michael and I'm running back because look at my king. Look at my king. Church, do you want to see revival happen in this land? Do you want to see dreams and breakthrough and healing happen in this land? Then we need to stop going looking this way and we need to start facing and saying, look at my king. This is how I want to end this service. Because this is a call. This is a call to repentance. This is a call to say, do you know what? I need to turn back. And I don't, I don't need to know the details. But this is your opportunity. And so the band is going to lead us in a song. I want everyone to stand to their feet. We have left this altar space open because this is a moment. Do not miss this moment. This is a moment where we will sit down and say, I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn to my king. If that is you, even as I'm praying, I want you to begin to come. There's space here at the altar. There is no shame. There is no guilt here. But there is a king that wants you back. So Jesus, we, we turn our lives to you. We say, Father, would you forgive us for the times that we have looked the other way, for the times that we have positioned our hearts away from you, for the times that we have, we have turned and we have faced the other direction. And in this moment, in this time, we say, Lord, we've sinned against you and we turn to face you again. Would you come and would you move in my life? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. These altars are going to be open. If you need prayer, we have some of our prayer team that will be off here to the side. I love, I love Northern Irish people and I know that they'll never do something they don't want to do. No preacher is going to get them to force up out of their seats and come and do something. That's not my intention. But if you need to come in and turn and repent, this opportunity is for you. And can I say, if you want revival to start, it starts with you doing this. Let's worship.